Hey there, folks. We're kicking off today's episode with a cup of tea from the Nepal Tea Collective. Nepal Tea is a social enterprise based in New York that distributes the freshest organically grown teas to different parts of the world directly from smallholder farmers in the beautiful country of, you guessed it, Nepal. You can join us for a cup of tea and be part of the global impact they're creating by visiting nepalteacollective.com. That's nepalteacollective.com. <laughs> Yikes, my cup of tea is already getting cold. So why don't you join me and hop into today's episode? Hello, lovely listeners. The banter continues on a brand new episode here in the boardroom. The role of social innovation in driving growth has never been more evident than in the African century that we are in today. In today's episode, we have a chat with Egyptian-born entrepreneur and investor Dina Sharif about the evolution of Africa as a growth market, the venture capital landscape on the continent, and her experience building sustainable, inclusive, and diverse societies to support entrepreneurs. Nearly a decade ago, she believed that the private sector had the potential to play a bigger role in leveraging sustainable business models to create an impact beyond the usual works of philanthropy. She co-founded a company known as Ahead of the Curve to help them do exactly that. She joins us today from Boston, Massachusetts, where she leads MIT's Legatum Center for Development and Entrepreneurship as its executive director and has some wise words to share with the entrepreneurs, investors, policymakers, regulators, and other curious minds tuning into this podcast today. Let's hop right in. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are, whoever you are. I want to give you a warm welcome to another Boardroom Banter podcast episode. As usual, today is a guest episode. And so we're going to be speaking to someone who we think you guys are in for an absolute masterclass on, right? Um, I'm joined in the boardroom with my co-host Boniface and I'm Sean Karanja, going to be co-hosting today. And yeah, I'm your guy for everything ed tech, entrepreneurship, I, I absolutely love these conversations that we have every week. And if you haven't tuned into our previous episodes leading up to today, um, we released a Founders Friday episode last week where Yuri Boniface and I got to sit down and chat about um, all things startup. We talked about a bit of macroeconomics, talked about inflation going on around in the world and some of our hobbies that we've been picking up or looking to pick up soon. So if you've missed out on that episode, go ahead and listen to that also. But today in the boardroom, I've got Boniface with me. Boniface is looking alive and lively. How you Boniface, doing, Sean? Talk I'm well, thank you. Hey. Let's, let's pretend that we, we didn't really <laughs> check each other. How, how's everything going, Boniface? Things are going well. And, you know, as we, as we get into, into today's guest, it's funny because we're, we're really tying into what we spoke about in our, you know, Founders Friday, right? We're looking at African startups. We looked at why, why some African startups have been, have been closing down in recent times, right? Due to funding, due to, due to poor leadership. And, and today's guest is someone who has quite the experience building companies in Africa and more specifically in Egypt. So Dina, how are you doing today? Welcome. I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me um, on this podcast. I, I'm super excited and truly very humbled that you invited me uh, and very much uh, appreciate what you're trying to do and who you're trying to bring out there, especially to, you. to youth in Africa. Thank you so much. And, uh, where are you currently joining us from? Boston, MIT in my office. <laughs> beautiful beautiful so uh you and i were just talking before before we kicked off the podcast that you you are first guest from the east coast and we had quite uh, a number of people from from stanford over the past couple of weeks you and i spent a couple of, of weeks there during the summer working on some entrepreneurial projects and i think we'll get into this um a little after but sean what do we have for dina today 
Well, Dina, this is going to be a, a quick conversation about a, a bit of your work. And one of the things that we love about what you bring to the table is, you know, over 20 years of international and regional experience in, you know, women's economic inclusion, sustainable development, um, social entrepreneurship, impact investing, you name it. I mean, the list is super long, Dina. And, you know, one of the, one of the crazy things that I really want us to get into is your story, because that's one of the things that we've been coming across a bit in, in our, in our research on you and just that, you know, you've, you've got, you've got such a diverse and rich background, which we're super excited to get into. So when you're not the executive director of Legatum Center of Development and Entrepreneurship at MIT, you're also the founding partner and CEO of Ahead of the Curve. No, I'm not CEO anymore. I stepped down about four years ago. (laughs) Let's just start there. Why did you step down? Uh, we, we, we can st- <laughs> we, let's start that. This, this is new stuff. Still yeah. founding partner. Right. I'm still very involved, um, but I'm no longer CEO. I, I stepped down from that role um, almost four years ago now. Um, why? Was that your question? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, hmm. I think I, I, think I have Dina, a... we... Go ahead. We, we can start with what ahead of the curve is yeah. and then you can lead us into, into why you left and what you're up to yeah. right now. I mean, to say what ahead of, why I started ahead of the curve with my co-founder and what it was doing, I, I think it's important to start with I, the, how I've come to make decisions throughout my entire career, right? Um, I, I started my career more on the sustainable development community development side. I was very focused on, you know, how, how can we improve um, economic development and social development, but mainly from the donor side. So from the side that was driven by the World Banks and the African Development Banks and the UN agencies um, and the fairly large donors. And I was... Uh, deeply, I think, um, I became very disillusioned with how little impact uh, on the ground a lot of these traditional donor-led development initiatives actually had. And uh, my, my career choices have always been driven by meaning and what I can actually do that is impactful and that has meaning. And so I, I've always used my that as a compass. If I felt that I wasn't having impact anymore, I knew it was time to transition to something else. Um, and that transition is what led me to believing that local development really needs to be owned by local resources, by local wealth, and by local entrepreneurs. And that's why for part of my career, I transitioned to focusing a lot on philanthropy. Um, I, I was... Uh, the, one of the founding members of the Gerhardt Center for Philanthropy and Civic Engagement that was based at the American University in Cairo. I wrote a book on philanthropy um, and the role of strategic philanthropy in the Arab world. Um, and a big part of that was really around how can we uh, use our own local resources and our own local wealth to drive solutions to our own problems. Um, and I think what Over the years, I also became very focused on this idea or the role that private sector could play in the sustainable development puzzle. Um, And when when the Arab, what we call the Arab Spring happened, or when the uprisings in Egypt happened, there was a huge focus on transparency and governance and um, thinking through the how the private sector could engage more effectively. Um, and my decision to start ahead of the curve really came from this idea that I want to work with companies, very large companies, um, to develop their business models in a way and their business strategies in a way that puts sustainability at the very core 
Um, and, and so we started ahead of the curve saying that we would work top down. So with the very large companies in the Arab region to really help them integrate sustainability into their business strategies, to help them think about how to um, invest in the in what we used to call the base of the pyramid or what I now um, borrow from my good friend Afosa Ajomo, which is how do we bring in the non-consumers, those that we traditionally don't think um, can actually pay for products and services, but actually they can and they do pay a premium. Um, so the ahead of the curve was really built to help the private sector think way out into the future of the roles that they should be playing through their businesses, not through philanthropy, but through the solutions they provi provide and through how they can actually um, engage their stakeholders more effectively so that they could have impact. Um, and then we always said that we would work bottom up. So if we really want the private sector to be what we know it could be, we need to start bringing in a whole generation of entrepreneurs who are building and designing business models from the get-go that were solving complex problems. And so Ahead of the Curve really became one of the leading uh, um, companies in the region uh, to help young Arab, Arab youth who wanted to design, build, scale businesses that were solving co complex problems that they would get support from us in terms of um, capacity building, education, training, access to investors who had the same kind of values. Um, and in that, uh, this in the spirit of inclusion, we always focused on how can we also shed light on inclusion of women um, and support women entrepreneurs get access to capital, access to the networks they needed, uh, and the same for the companies that we worked with and that we took on as clients, how could they also create more space and be more inclusive in the workplace? Um, so that's the story of Ahead of the Curve. And I think why I stepped down uh, is because I, I think I had reached a peak as CEO um, in terms of my learning curve as a professional, as an individual. Um, you know, I have a lot of years of experience, so I guess for you guys, I'm old, but I still think of myself as young. <laughs> you know, I still have many, many years left to work. Um, but I felt that I was becoming, uh, I was, I felt that I was becoming, uh, an impediment to the growth of the company because I myself was no longer growing and I felt a hunger to do something more global outside of the Middle East. Um, and I wanted to go back to really focusing more on Africa as a continent, but also other regions in the world that were comparable. So Latin America, Southeast Asia, South Asia. I, I really wanted to take more of a global lens and bring my um, knowledge and experience and ex uh, to, to other global growth markets um, and step out of the, the Middle East. And I had built a really amazing team, and I think they were quite capable of taking the company forward. So it was a group decision, and I felt very comfortable with it. And I think, you know, I hope that over time, more people who start businesses start feeling more comfortable um, passing on the baton to others that have built with them. Dina, I love, I love what I'm hearing right now, and there's, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, congratulations on the amazing work that, that you've been able to do. And, and when I listen to how you, you express and define impact with the head of the curve, the communities that were involved in the solutions seemed like a very important and, and pivotal role to this. And, and that emphasis on the private sector. When it comes to private sector versus public sector, I think there's quite a difference with how both of these sectors approach community engagement and, and solutions and impact. Because from what you just mentioned towards the end, right, there's, at least speaking for, for countries like Kenya and, and our public sector and our governments, we don't see as much willingness from leaders to let go, right, and create more space for, for younger people, for, for more ideas, right? Um, I'd be curious to hear, Dina, in the work that you did engage the private sector, what were the relationship that, relationships that were still important to build with the public sector and governments in terms of bringing them into the conversation as part of this eco entrepreneurial ecosystem? Hmm. You know, I think that um, 
for some reason, we've always put the public sector on one side, the private sector on the other, and then somewhere in our orbit has always been, you know, the third sector, what we call civil society. So those nonprofits, foundations, but also citizens are part of that third sector. We always somehow kind of create silos. And the reality is, as with pretty much everything in life, uh, everything is interconnected and intertwined. Um, and I think progress can only ever happen when we allow for the kind of integrated collaboration that is required for us to solve many of the complex problems that we have, right? Um, if we think about Africa and some of the issues that we face, I, I for, first of all, I think Africa as a continent, it, it's quite beautiful what is happening now too, right? Because we're seeing so much growth and dynamism from the younger generations and that narrative maybe isn't being told in the same in the way that it should right when i'm you know when we're here in the united states and we say africa people are still hanging up pictures of you know poor children during a famine in in somalia or you know that it's still we're still equating it with that narrative of um our colonial history and the poverty that we've had to uh elevate ourselves from. But the reality is also there are many other narratives to tell and uh, Africa is moving really fast and evolving really fast and we're seeing economies grow at a very rapid rate. Now, I think the question is how are we going to sustain that rapid economic growth rate and how are we going to do that in a way that allows everyone to be part of it? Um, and if we look at if we take, for example, education, we know that the future of Africa really depends on our ability to truly disrupt and transform our education systems. We know that the future of Africa um, is really dependent on us being able to transform um, healthcare systems across the continent. But also, we've also we also know that Africa is resilient, right? Our systems over time we continue to exist and push and thrive in spite of many of the obstacles we face. But I think if we're going to see true systemic change and some of the problems and challenges that we have um, truly be solved, this kind of siloed approach of public sector here, private sector here, civil society here, it's not going to work anymore. Um, and I think when we, when I started ahead of the curve, we always intended to say these lines are always going to be blurred and we need to bring all these different stakeholders to the table. And when we would talk to entrepreneurs about designing business models to solve these complex problems and out of a true belief that entrepreneurs truly have, I think, the ability to come up with innovative solutions, but scale these solutions rapidly in a way that um, governments and not-for-profits uh, don't have. Uh, I think entrepreneurs have the ability to be agile and to move quickly and to scale quickly. But the reality is also, if they're really going, going to work on complex problems, they need to be able to do that in collaboration with, with the government. And governments need to create space and allow um, themselves to also work with these young entrepreneurs and to truly see them as partners in the process of developing their countries. Uh, and that requires that we rebuild elements of trust. Um, the public sector is needed. We can't live without them. Also, they have resources that nobody will ever have. And then they create the policies that are anchors for everything that we do. So demonizing the public sector isn't very productive, but also demonizing the private sector and saying, oh, yeah, these people only exist to make money isn't very productive either, because the, the nature of the private sector is we need wealth to create jobs. We need wealth to also flow through our systems to to fund and to support a systems transformation. And we need civil society to bring the voice of the people to the table um, and, and to keep everyone on track. So the reality is we need to have all these voices and we need to find a way for these voices to be, uh, to be brought to the table together. Um, but I think historically we've had these issues of trust between each of these stakeholder groups. And uh, we tend to see each other through these very narrow lenses, as opposed to seeing how 
um, we can take advantage of the benefits that each of these people bring to the table in terms of progress for our countries. Uh, and I think that without without us letting go of, you know, past, uh, I think past narratives and past framings of each of these stakeholders, um, we won't be able to make that much progress. You know, as a as an entrepreneur, a lot of what you say resonates from a standpoint of, um, especially as a Kenyan, right now we've just got a new leadership into the picture and a lot of the conversations that, you know, I'm seeing popping up on platforms like Twitter, you know, where a lot of us are, are able to go out and just debate openly with each other about what are the policies that are out there and, you know, how, how are these things going to affect us on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And I, I totally agree with you that isolating private sector and public sector creates it, it it just it just creates an ecosystem where you know neither are able to speak to each other and the people who suffer at the end of the day are you know the consumers and and, and the civilians at the end of the day right um, I, I'd I'd like I'd like you to give us a bit of a case study example so we know that you you had done some work and and have been close with. Um, um, Mohamed Okasha, who you know was was one of the one of the leaders of Fari, which is Egypt's first unicorn, so startup of a billion dollar valuation, and that's something really huge for Africa, right? Africa only has a a handful of unicorns in our pocket right now, and you know we're really rooting for these startups to grow, and you know you are one of the individuals who have been able to see Fari which is a, a fintech startup, which is no longer a startup, so to speak. It's, it's grown really big. And, you know, Mohamed Okasha, who was, who was the, the, the lead of um, Fari, since then went on to launch Disruptech, which was Egypt's first VC fund that focused on fintech and fintech-enabled startups. And so, you know, you, you saw someone go from one stakeholder group to another. And, and one of these stakeholder groups, which is super important, is the venture capital community. And this is something that we had also spoken about in our previous um, Founders Friday episode. And as someone who has, you know, seen venture capital and, and the dynamics around that and, you know, what it really takes to support entrepreneurs and to, and to grow them, I'd love for you to break down, you know, what's the VC community like um, out in Egypt? What's startup culture like? And how are these different stakeholders um, coming into conversation and, and really growing? I, I'm super curious about what that what that looked like and also the role that you've been playing in it. I feel like, Sean, have you been living my life the past couple of weeks? I feel like you were somehow, you've been a fly on the wall. I feel like for the past several weeks, all I've been talking stop. about, I've been talking a lot about um, venture capital yeah. over the past months. Um, so, you know, I'm, I am a partner in Disrupt Tech. Um, I, I, Muhammad Akesha asked me to join when he first decided to start Disrupt Tech. And I, and I think a part of that is because um, he, he really believed in the importance of inclusion and driving impact. Uh, and that's been a flag that I've been, you know, carrying for a very long time. And FinTech is inevitably for Africa going to be the largest enabler for us to create inclusion, economic inclusion. Um, for women, for youth, for everyone who has somehow been marginalized from the traditional um, formal financial uh, system. And I think for, for Muhammad Akesha in particular, when he started Disruptech and decided to also step down from Fauri um, and start a VC fund. So he moved from being, you know, uh, a co-founder, senior executive to starting a venture capital fund. It, it, it was because when he was growing Fauri, he also realized that when they were raising capital, and this we know to be true, there really wasn't a lot of industry expertise 
from those he was raising capital from. So when you go to raise money from a venture capitalist, but they don't really understand um, fintech or the regulatory environments that you have to engage with, uh, it, it becomes it becomes difficult, right? It's not as easy to make that capital work for you when you're dealing with investors who don't truly understand the space. And he really wanted to create a sector-specific fund so that he could bring this industry uh, expertise to the new generation of entrepreneurs who are going to engage in fintech. And so he felt that that was his role, that that was the role he needed to play and that there was a gap that needed to be filled in terms of very sector-specific um, risk capital within the Egyptian market. Now, my my thoughts around venture capital in specific, that, that could take hours, right? But I think with anything in life, you know, the beginning really matters and the end really matters. Um, so how we start things is really crucial and how we choose to end things and how things end is also really crucial. Obviously, there's so much in the middle that also matters, right? But for some reason, we always remember the beginning and the end. <laughs> you know, when we listen to stories, you remember how the story started, you remember how the story ended, but sometimes the stuff in the middle can become a little bit vague. Now, for innovation-driven entrepreneurs, venture capital is their beginning, right? For tech entrepreneurs, um, going out and raising venture capital, that's the start of the journey. And it's really important, that decision becomes really important. How capital is allocated and deployed um, is really important, especially in the venture capital world. And I think venture capitalists forget sometimes that they are the beginning of an entrepreneur's journey. And, and that relationship, it can't be transactional because starting a business, a venture, of which we don't know really how it's going to emerge because most innovation-driven businesses are solving problems we don't yet have solutions for. So they're learning as they go along. Um, and I think a lot of investors have made it very transactional when it really needs to be a very, uh, I think very deep relationship between an investor and an entrepreneur, especially in the context of a place like Africa where so much is still evolving and growing, including regulatory environments, right? The tech space moves so fast and our regulatory environments are not moving as fast. So oftentimes you have entrepreneurs who are kind of like, oh, well, we don't really have, you know, we don't really have clear policies in FinTech yet. They're kind of being created as entrepreneurs are creating the space. That's what happened in Egypt. The, the regulatory environment that now supports fintech in Egypt was really a direct result of a lot of what Fodi was doing. They were creating space for new entrepreneurs to come along by also um, being the first to come to market that, to really push the government to create the policies required for this space to thrive. Um, so I think that venture capitalists have a big role to play in the beginning part of an entrepreneur's journey, but also they have a big role to play when it comes to systems transformation, right? So how you choose, how we as venture capitalists, how we choose to build our portfolio really, really matters. Are we making decisions to invest in companies just on the highest return that we're going to get back? Or are we making decisions to build our portfolio in a way so that the businesses that we invest in are somehow connected to each other and really building, building and disrupting a system in a way that's going to allow for massive progress and evolution to happen, which will inevitably bring back, bring back very high returns. But I'm not sure venture capitalists are thinking on that level of systems transformation or the role that they can play in doing that. Because the reality is also when we think about um, our countries and how we're thinking about the our development journeys, how we're evolving, we also don't engage venture capitalists in that conversation. Governments aren't out there saying, hey, all of you who are deploying capital, whether you be local or um, whether you're the, the 
the VC funds that are coming from Silicon Valley to kind of scout out our up and coming entrepreneurs, uh, we want to have conversations with you because it's really important that we see innovation happen in education. It's really important that we see education happen in agriculture, in healthcare, because this is what is important to our overall national strategy. That is not happening. Now, so how can we get venture capital to have a seat at that table so that they understand the incredible importance of the capital they deploy and how that will inevitably lead to a better ending for everybody? These are the conversations that we need to start having. Wow, Dina, that was a that was a really nice, nice breakdown of of the situation of the ground right now. And I think it, it takes you back to some of the aspects or, and phrases that you use when when talking about how these communities are coming together and and what concepts we need to see more of. And one of the things that you speak about very often is is the need for more conscious capitalism. And I'd love if you could just break that down for us, what it means and what the practical application of it should be different in Africa as opposed to other parts of the world. Yeah, you know, I think I think by default, it's going to be different in Africa. Um, I talk a lot about conscious capitalism and a lot of people tell me, why, why, why are you capitalist? How can you be all about impact and making the world a better place and be a capitalist? And I always say that at the very core of capitalism as an ideology has always been the idea of value creation. The, the idea um, that was brought forth by Milton Friedman when the, the person that everybody quotes at the business of the only business of business is to generate profits, I think was taken out of context. Um, it, the, the idea is that the only business of business is to generate wealth and pro profits. However, within particular, particular regulatory environments, right? So Milton Friedman always said that businesses will function in accordance with the, the environments that they exist in. So if policymakers and regulators are not creating a space that dictates that the private sector needs to be creating multiple layers of value, they need to be making sure that they are not negatively impacting the environment and destroying the environment. They need to make sure that private companies are giving back to their communities and being a part of the solution. If those policies are not there in place, then basically companies will go out there and focus on generating profits. But nobody ever said that businesses were supposed to exist in a vacuum, you know? And so it's, it's, it's not accurate to demonize the private sector for how, for their poor behavior that happened in the absence of regulators playing the role that they needed to play. And I think for me, conscious capitalism goes back to what we talked about earlier, the intersectionality of all of these stakeholders um, needs to happen. And that's how capitalism becomes a lot more mindful. It, the world we live in today needs, we, need, we can't deny that we need generation of wealth. We can't deny that we need to see private sector expand because we need jobs. Africa as a continent, the most important, important I think issue at hand for us is creating jobs for our youth. You know, the young population of Africa, they wanna go out, they wanna transition to adulthood. They wanna live their lives. They want to live better lives. And we have an obligation to create jobs. And that means that we have an obligation to see entrepreneurship thrive and to see ventures have the space to grow. And, and I think in essence, um, I think what we need to see uh, it, we need to see capitalism as an ideology or as a way of thinking about wealth generation. We need to see that stop uh, being only with the private sector at the core. It really, it really was always designed to be um, a private sector that was functioning with appropriate uh, uh, policies and regulations to govern. Um, and I think for me also, and what we all, I always say, governance is at the core of everything. 
how we make decisions, how we choose to show up as leaders. And I, I think in the absence of policymakers um, really driving this space and allowing for conscious capitalism to, to evolve, those, those who are in the private sector need to volunteer to do that themselves. And, and that requires leadership. That requires people stepping up and saying, um, if we're going to see uh, problems get solved and if we're going to see the world move in a better direction where we're not destroying our environment, we're not contributing to climate change, where we're not excluding consumers because we believe they can't pay for products and services, um, where we are being fair to those who work for us and paying them fair wages and creating um, he healthy, safe work environments. There's so many elements that go into this. It requires that people who are starting these businesses step up and say that they will um, not sacrifice profits, but that they will govern their businesses in a way that is fair and uh, to everyone and in a way that is not going to leave the world worse off, but to leave it better off, because that's what sustainability is about. And I think when we decided to call our company ahead of the curve, it was because we believed that if companies truly wanted to be ahead of the curve, they needed to, to think in terms of survival. And you're as a company, you're not going to survive if your surrounding environment um, it, it is being, being degraded and if we're seeing natural disasters and if your employees are unhappy and if your surrounding community is not doing well, it, it all exists together. We none of us exist in a vacuum, um, and so I think that that idea of saying that you know capitalism seems to be uh, the only way for us to proceed. How can we go back to the roots of capitalism, which was always about multiple layers of value creation, creating value for the for your company and your shareholders, but creating value for your stakeholders. Um, at the same time. Uh, I don't think we're there yet, you know, obviously, and I think it's going to take a lot of work. But I have to say, I'm really hopeful about your generation and how a lot of entrepreneurs of the generations younger than mine are coming to the table and really thinking very mindfully about all of these issues. Um, and, and, and it may be unfair to say that the responsibility falls on them. The responsibility really falls on all of us and also falls on, like I said, the public sector, private sector, civil society need to be having better, more open conversations of collaboration and co-creation and really thinking about how their roles overlap and intertwine. But I do believe that the younger, this new generation of entrepreneurs that I'm seeing, uh, specifically in Africa, I really feel that they are a lot more mindful about the role that they can play and about the impact that they inevitably will have through their businesses. Fantastic. You know, we, we don't we don't exist in a vacuum. And it, it it's totally up to us at the end of the day to make sure that, you know, the inputs that we put into our businesses you know, we need to be mindful of what the outputs of that are on our different stakeholder groups. And, you know, as a business management student, when, you know, we're answering all these essay questions and writing all these papers, doing the research, you know, a, a lot of the times the, the humans behind the businesses can sometimes get lost, right? They get lost in the, in the balance sheets, they get lost in the, you know, profit loss, this, that, and we as entrepreneurs sometimes, you know, can forget that we are enabled by the people who consume our product. So it's in our best interest to make sure that they are better off at the end of the day. I was going to ask you what you're, you well, know, well, hopeful well, yeah, for. Yes, you're right, Sean. Yeah. But yeah. we have to also be realistic. Oftentimes right. entrepreneurs find themselves in a, in a in a very difficult position where their investors and shareholders are putting enormous pressure on them. And I think, especially in Africa today, we've seen a lot of entrepreneurs struggle and their companies not 
not make it through. And a part of that is because entrepreneurs are falling under the enormous pressure of investors, right? And I think that goes back to the part where I was saying the beginning really matters and that relationship between entrepreneur and investor really matters to, to the success and growth of an entrepreneur. But companies, it, we can't deny that uh, venture capitalists have LPs. So they're those who invest money into funds. Yeah. And so fund managers, <laughs> fund managers often find themselves also under enormous pressure from their LPs who want to see returns, which means they put pressure on their entrepreneurs because they want to see returns. So there are multiple layers, right? And entrepreneurs, they want to focus on their consumers. And everyone somehow is being trapped in the layer above them because we're not bringing everyone along. You know, we're not really bringing the the LPs of funds along in this conversation. So even if a fund manager really wants to find a way to give entrepreneurs space to um, make mistakes and grow and evolve and be with them on that journey, they're also somehow stuck because they have to give money back to their LPs. Um, and we're we're just not having good conversations across the that entire value chain. So it's it's not fair for us to say, okay, well you know, entrepreneurs really just need to focus on their consumers when there's a lot of pressure to give money back to their investors. And those investors are under pressure to give money back to their LPs and governments are not creating policies to dictate how everyone should be behaving for the good of society, right? So it all comes not back- Not all in conversation. Yeah, it all comes back to the fact that none of us exist in a vacuum. We're all interconnected. And if we're all not having conversations that are designed to really think through what is in the big picture benefit of our society, then we're all getting trapped in these very small boxes of our own self-interest. So it's never yeah. as simple as uh, there's no. a lot more nuance to it all. That's that's true. We had a previous conversation with a guest and you know one of the things that she was urging us to do is to look at stories from a multidimensional standpoint and you know when when we look at a lot of startups that recently have shut down because they weren't able to raise new funds um new rounds rather of funding you know sometimes we're quick to say oh they weren't solving a real problem or uh you know, they were mismanaging their, their capital. But, you know, now, now that you actually think about it, maybe you've been giving them a hard time because those entrepreneurs are probably getting an even harder time from, you know, these LPs, fund managers, et cetera. And, you know, it's it's a valuation game at the end of the day. When you raise new rounds at, at higher valuations, higher share prices, that means that, you know, whoever came in earlier in the beginning can get out at, you know, a much better off um, point. So th there's a whole game going on and we, and we really need to understand who the players well, are. Well, there's a game going on and also what are we what are we teaching yeah. these young entrepreneurs, right? It's I think it's unfair for us to be saying to these entrepreneurs, you can't you're giving us these high valuations. We're going to give you, you know, um a 10 million, 15 million, 20 million dollar check. But then we're not going to teach you about good governance. We're not going to teach you about transparency. We're not going to teach you how to make good decisions. And we're not going to teach you what's going to happen when you're constantly dealing with pressure and uncertainty and the impacts that that has on an individual, a, a leader. So, you know, we're putting enormous pressure on these young entrepreneurs, but a lot of our entrepreneurs, they're still learning as they go. Right. It's not that a lot of them have had 20, 30 years of experience. So I, I think, yeah, maybe it's fair for us to make these demands of entrepreneurs if we're also really giving them the kind of support that they need to make the right decisions, to know how to deal with pressure, to understand how to read what is happening in their surrounding environment and identify how to engage their stakeholders properly. But I'm not sure we're even teaching entrepreneurs how to build the right kind of boards, how to build the governance structure to alleviate pressure 
from themselves and create accountability and responsibility so that it doesn't all fall on the entrepreneur. Um, so I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done like within our ecosystems um, yeah. before we can just constantly hold these entrepreneurs accountable. Uh, were we giving them what they really needed to succeed? As, as someone who is absolutely obsessed with education, specifically around, you know, can you teach people how to be better entrepreneurs? This is, you're, you're literally shouting at me. This, this is content. This, these are masterclasses that, you know. Curriculum right there. The question, is, the right question curriculum. to ask is, yeah. can we teach entrepreneurs to be more responsible, accountable mm. entrepreneurs, right? Mm. Because, you know, better is, that's all relative. What is a better entrepreneur? But True. responsible True. and an entrepreneur who understands the principles of good governance and transparency um, and how to navigate uh, and use a board to make very difficult decisions in uncertain times, I think that's what, those are the questions we should be asking. I love it. I love it. So Dina, we've, we've reached the end part of our conversation. I really wish that it could go on for hours longer and definitely we shall be reaching out to you and, and still picking your brain about this because um, it's super relevant. And even us as entrepreneurs, we need to be hearing this. We need to be learning this. So you shall now join me in our last bit. Um, we like to call this the elevator section, um, rather elevator segment and picture this. So we've just had our great conversation right now. We've wrapped up, we've learned what we needed to learn and you're leaving the boardroom. Uh, you, you're leaving the conversation you're having with us and walking towards the elevator, you meet one of our interns and they stop you right on time, get into the elevator with you and have two quick fire questions to ask you on the way down. So Dina, are you ready to answer these quick fire questions for us? I'm gonna try. Perfect. So the first question is, if there's one skill that you would urge young people to learn in their 20s that would set them up as best as possible for life, what skill would that be? Oh God, skill. I don't know that it's a skill. If there was one thing that I think I would say to any young entrepreneur, it, it, it's to be patient um, and to allow yourself the space to learn and evolve um, and to not give up, right? Because I think sometimes we're too quick uh, to give up and too quick to also um, not allow ourselves to grow in the way that we need. But it's oftentimes easier to just say, this isn't working, put the blame on this person, put the blame on that person. So I would say patience, you know, take things time, give things time and take it slowly, baby steps, one step at a time. Yeah. This one is a bit more personal. So what's what's one of your favorite hobbies? We're curious. When when you're not a VC, when you're not in MIT, when you're not changing the world, you know what what's Dina up to? Oh, you know, when I <laughs> when I'm not working, I think what I'm up to is I I I have come to really cherish um my the friendships in my life and and the the people I call my tribe. And I think if I'm not working, I'm spending time with the people I love, um, cooking dinner, hosting people over, making food. I think, you know, you you guys are from Africa, so you know for us in Africa, food, food isn't just about food. Food is about who you bring to the table and the conversations that you have while you're eating and sharing and breaking bread with others. Yeah, for sure. And that, that is a huge part of our lives is um, building that community and using food to do that. And that's something I love to cook. I love to uh, bring people into my home um, to share meals with me and to really develop the, the relationships with the people I love and use that as quality time. Uh, because we all need, uh, you know, and especially entrepreneurs, all need tribes. We all need people who will 
e-cheerleaders for us, but also people who will say, mm, watch it, you're making some uh, not so great choices. We, how do we hold each other accountable there? So, yeah. I, I love okay. that one, Dina. Dina, uh, one last question, one last elevator question as we, as we get to the bottom. What did you care about in your 20s that you don't care about anymore? Oh, my goodness. There's so many things. I used to really care. I used to care what, what, what people thought about me. Um, it used to matter to me uh, how I was being perceived by people. Um, and I think as I, uh, and, you know, women in particular, I think for women in particular, this is something that we're conditioned. We're somehow always conditioned that we have to please this person and we have to seek out the approval of this person and we have to prove that we're worthy. Um, and I think I was constantly trying to prove that I was good enough, constantly trying to prove that I was worthy, that I deserved a seat at this table, that I was just as good as the my male counterpart here. Um, and I think as I kind of worked my way through my 30s, I stopped caring. And I think I was never supposed to care to begin with, right? Because we're all worthy, we're all good enough. And oftentimes how people perceive you is their problem and not really yours. And I think that um, standing true in who you are and what you believe in um, and really uh, being anchored in that and being anchored in the fact that you have a right to be who you are, you have a right to your own voice, um, you have a right to have your own opinions and how everyone else chooses to uh, accept that or perceive that that's really their problem, not yours. Uh, and spending time obsessing about it, it just eats up time that you could be using to do other valuable, meaningful work. Wow, brilliant, brilliant way. <laughs> brilliant way to end this for us, Dina. I'm seeing Yuri, Yuri, Yuri just messaged in the chat that, you know, he really needed to hear that. I think that's a very important message to, sure. to, to our young audience. Don't, don't worry, Yuri. I think I probably really needed to remind myself of that these days too. <laughs> there we go. Look at look at what's happening on this podcast right now. Love this you. is this is the the environment that we that we love to create, Dina. And I think one of the biggest things I'm taking away from this as an entrepreneur and as a young person is you know, the importance of inviting people into the conversation, right? in the entrepreneurial yeah. ecosystem and, and outside. And shout out to every single person listening to this who is an entrepreneur, who is, you know, a courageous go-getter and risk-taker in the world. And on the African continent, for those who are listening, we, you know, we do acknowledge you, we do see you. And as the Bodrum Banter podcast, and, and as Dina mentioned, we are here as part of the, as part of your community to support you and, and be here for you. Thank you so much, Dina, for, for this amazing conversation. It's it's a breath of fresh air, right? Having having you here and and you sharing this experience. I know I know where Sean, Sean will be living here thinking, hey, as I graduate next year, Legatum Center for Development is uh you know <laughs> looking a bit attractive I'm just right thinking. now. Dina, do you need right, interns? You know, Sean, by all means, we need <laughs> interns. Definitely let me know. There we go. And on that yeah, note, sure. we shall take this conversation off air <laughs> for our lovely listeners. <laughs> we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for being with us, Dina. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.